We have all kinds of states. What other states? Florida. Really? Good to see you. Florida. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Where? West Virginia. By yourself. Ukraine. That's where my daughter-in-law is from, too. Ukraine. You knew that? Vietnam. Um, all kinds of states. State of reversionism, Jim. Uh, what other states? I'm curious now. Tom. Huh? Confusion. Tom, state of confusion. That's why you come here. It gets worse, right? When you get... The patrolling angel of Oakma, right over there, Don, telling you, one more thing, Steve Schindler, I received a word, you're going to see Jesus soon, (laughs) okay, very good, okay. All right, anywhere in Luke. He's going to the play. (laughs) That's all I need is, you should have heard what he said to Steve. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? Not for Steve, but for all of them. Okay. Where am I now? Oh, Parable of the Rich Man and Lazarus, part two. Surprised you last night. This is not part of the Romans, the epistle series. The question came up again with our Mississippi all-stars. I know you don't like to be called that. Semi-stars then. About the Parable of the Rich Man and Lazarus. And I had a few things on it. So first part was last night. Second part tonight, so the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, part two, a nice compliment for our series on hell, all told, all put together, it's simply called hell no. Hell, question mark, no, exclamation point. Very good. Let's take a few moments of silent preparation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. And it's just such a joy to know that there are like-minded believers in participation with your son's fidelity and love. And that we have traveled, all of us, we've come from somewhere else and we're glad to be here. And we thank you for the privilege now of being in the presence of an all-saving Savior in the presence of our Heavenly Father, in the presence of the Spirit of Truth. And we pray that the Spirit of Truth will have the best kind of access to our hearts tonight and open our minds to understand the Scriptures as what they are indeed, the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ in His universally saving significance and in the universally redemptive power of his death and burial, his resurrection, ascension, and present glorification. Grant that we live a life of divinely approved livingness as a result of what we hear tonight, where we ask it in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I warned our audience last night, this is somewhat of a undistilled treatment of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It is a question that's in the hearts and minds of many people, so we are addressing it. And it will someday take a form that I think is a little more concentrated, distilled, clear, and at the same time maybe expanded a little bit. Last night we began the first two parts. It's hanging together as... The Lucan horizon, the Lucan horizon or the horizon of Luke's gospel plus Acts, Luke plus Acts, we showed he has a definitive universalistic 
horizon. The gospel, according to Luke, is a universal gospel, and it's mostly found in Luke chapter 3, verse 6, a quotation of Isaiah 40 and verse 5, all flesh together will see the salvation of God, the announcement of John the baptizer, which signals Luke's roots in Isaiah 40 to 55, which is the Deutero-Isaiah passage, which is starkly and stunningly universalistic, and at the heart of that is our Lord Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, especially Isaiah 53. And so in the light of the Lucan horizon, not one paragraph, not one parable, not one pericope, not one episode in the story of the life of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection can in any way oppose that overall tone in which Christ is proclaimed according to his universally saving significance. And that includes the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The second theme we've looked at is the key, and we've actually demonstrated this as the explosive planted by Jesus Christ that blows up any conception of this parable being a depiction of an afterlife, an afterlife of a bad soul in eternal flames of hell. The opposite is what Jesus intends by telling this parable. So we, the next phase then we could say, and this is actually forming up as I'm speaking, Luke and Horizon first, the law and the prophets was the second phrase that was used. And the climax of that, the law and the prophets, of course, is a dual climax. The law and the prophets all speak of Jesus Christ. Ought not Christ to have suffered to enter into his glory? He said to the slow-witted disciples, the slow to believe disciples on the road to Emmaus, are you not aware of what all the prophets have said, that Christ must suffer to enter his glory? That glory is universal. That glory will fill the earth, according to Habakkuk 2.14. That's what the gospel of the glory of the Christ is all about, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. And the minds of unbelieving people who call themselves Christians are veiled to this reality, to this gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. We see Jesus Christ identified as the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We see it again in Colossians 1.15. Both are in a context, Colossians more easily identifiable, of universal reconciliation. The great poem of Colossians 1.15 to 20 begins with Christ as the ekon or the image of God. It ends with the reconciliation of all things in heavens and earth by the peace that was made through the blood of his cross. Universal reconciliation is a Bible term there. Acts also includes, or Luke also includes Acts. So Luke, the Luke and Horizon includes Acts. And Acts 3.21 is something we really spent a lot of time on in Revelation, the close of Revelation, because all the prophets, or God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets from time immemorial, of the apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things. So if you want to identify this little paragraph called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as something that contradicts that whole horizon, then you're in trouble. You're already in trouble with your theory of hell. The hellists are in trouble. And we've also taken a brief look at the motif in Luke, called the rich man. There's many times in which the rich man is focused in on as a character and in connection with salvation. The key verse on that, which I haven't even begun to touch, is Isaiah 53, 9. In his death, he was with the rich man. He was with the rich man in his death. He died for the rich man. So there ain't no rich man in flames of hell, never will be and never has been. So the next phase is to consider after the Lucan horizon, and again, you can get this on the message from last night. After the Lucan horizon and the second pivotal phrase, the law and the prophets, and we then show by those two things the illogic of an eternal hell for bad souls 
which only comes about through a misreading of the parable in the rich of the rich man and Lazarus found in Luke 16:19 to 31 as I did last night I'll do it tonight I'll read pretty hefty sections of Luke just to bring home our argument here and when I do it will be largely from the Holman Christian Standard Bible I didn't have time to translate all of Luke and Acts before this series so third the third thing after the Luke and Horizon and after the the Law and the Prophets, Luke, thirdly, has written within his gospel a theme or a motif of the rich man and a consistent warning against avarice. Within Luke, or that's greed or covetousness, within Luke there is a significant theme regarding riches and specifically rich Persons. When Jesus came into history, there was a remarkable, shocking disparity between the opulently wealthy and the abjectly poor. And the opulently wealthy were like this rich man. They showed no concern for their poor brethren, and like Lazarus, who was represented there. And this was because they had no love of God and they had no love of neighbor, which is all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commands that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and belongings, strength and belongings, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put those both together, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, together with Luke, or Leviticus rather, 19, 18. And so he says in Luke 18, 24, again, this is, the par- this is the motif of the rich man. 24b, Luke 18, 24b. Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. God's salvation of all humankind is because of God's power, which is married to his unrestricted love. God's unlimited power married to his unrestricted and uncontingent love guarantees the salvation of all mankind. What's impossible with men is possible with God. So the point here is that it is impossible with men, that is purely by human resources, as Paul said in Romans 7:18, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing, no possibility of justification. For the rich man to be saved then by his own purely human resources, however great they may be, whether in the billions or trillions, He can't save himself. But with God, it is possible because, as we've already seen in Luke 137, all things are possible with God. Consider in Luke's gospel the example of a rich man. Before we consider the parable of the rich man who lifts up his eyes in Hades and the hopeless hell, which is only a metaphorical parable, consider the rich man in actuality, who was not only a rich man but a toll collector, which is a better translation than tax collector, to boot. Luke 19, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today I must stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. That doesn't do him any good, by the way. Jesus would, I picture Jesus laughing heartily at this one. 
But Jesus said this, today salvation has come to this house. And it's not because you're going to give up all the things you did to extort people. It's because I'm here, period, over and out. Today salvation has come to his house, this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. He too is a son of Abraham. Not because he too promised to do restitution for all the people he ripped off, but because he's a son of Abraham. Who is a son of Abraham? God promised Abraham one promise, which he repeated over and over again in Genesis. In you, that is, in your seed, meaning Christ, all the nations will be blessed, meaning all the nations will be the sons of Abraham. He's announcing here universal salvation, This guy, the most unlikely in the crowd, is part of that salvific action of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus doesn't throw somebody like him into hell. That's not the point of the parable, as we're going to see. The rich man in Hades, in fact, cried out, Father Abraham. He too was the son of Abraham. All Israel will be saved, says Romans eleven twenty six, and that means all of Israel, katasaka, according to the flesh as well, as we've seen. So what is Paul what is called by Paul the present Israel of God is simply the proleptic or the preview of the new creation. The man in the parable is made to call on Abraham. But one day, all will call on the name of the Lord and be saved, according to Joel 2.28, with Philippians 2.10 and 11. In Luke 1.53, there is another aspect of the rich man. It says, he has satisfied the hungry, God has, with good things, and sent the rich away empty. This was actually fulfilled when a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said... What must I do to inherit the life of the coming age? And Jesus said, you've heard what the law says. And he rattled off a few commandments. And what did this man say? He sounds almost like a young Saul of Tarsus. I've kept all these things from my youth up. Of the law, I am blameless. And Jesus said, well, then you lack one thing. You better sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. You'll not only have the life of the coming age, but great reward with it. And the rich man went away empty and sad. There's a lot that recommends the fact that that might have been, if not Saul of Tarsus himself, somebody surely like him. So, in Luke 6.24, I'm still on the motif of the rich man. He says, woe to you who are rich because you have received your comfort. But again, consider Isaiah 53, 9, which focuses, as do all the law and the prophets do, on Jesus Christ. Please notice this. The complete Jewish Bible, in fact, I use for this because it's a little more accurate. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says he was given a grave among the wicked. And then it says in his death, he was with a rich man. Meaning, not just Joseph of Arimathea who gave him his sepulcher, but the rich man that everybody thinks should be in hell was with Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ died. In other words, he died for the ungodly. He was with the rich man in his death. He was with the poor man in his death. He was with the man, the woman, the child. He was with all humankind in his death. He was with Adam in his death. He was with all mankind. For in Adam all die, and Christ all shall be made alive. Again, it should be noted that Jesus is constantly warning against covetousness or avarice. He hit this rich young ruler right where it hurts because his, the man believed that his land gave him favor with God. In fact, that's not the case. Luke twelve thirteen. someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Jesus says in verse 14, friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He didn't come for that. He then told him, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told him a parable. See, it's leading up to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. A rich man's land was very productive, he says. In verse 17, he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke 16, 1. Again, he said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe your master? He said to the first one, a hundred measures of oil, etc." It goes on to express the rich man. And then he says in verse 14, just to get it a little quicker here, get to it a little quicker, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he, he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Here it is again, verse 16, the lead in to the prophet, to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom has been proclaimed and everyone is strongly urged to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. And he goes on to express something that they were frittering away. He said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And he's dropping the law on them. Full bore here. But it's only to get their attention. Notice that in the above passage, both the law and the prophets and the rich man are the key motifs. That's all I've done so far tonight is to awaken you to those two motifs. The law and the prophets and the rich man, the two motifs. Fourth, then, the fourth point to make, and this is all going to make sense as we get to the, through the eighth point. It is important to see that not only do the rich man and Lazarus not represent two fates, of the dead, but that they also do not ultimately represent a binary view of humanity. They do not represent a binary view of humanity. Some saved, some lost, some saved by election, some, some rejected and non-elect. When the parable is viewed in its unity, and that's from 1619 to 31, it becomes clear that Jesus is highlighting not the fate or the destiny of people after death. What he's highlighting is the egregious economic disparity that persisted in that very time between the opulently wealthy and the abjectly poor. And in turn, this accentuates and stresses the abysmal lack of love for God and for one's neighbor, which is the summary twin mandate of all the law and all the prophets. 
Matthew 22, 37 to 40, compared to Luke 10, 26 and 27. This passage then is in step with John 5, 39 to 42. In other words, what Jesus is doing by this parable is what he said bluntly in John 5, 39 to 42 to those who intended to kill him. To those who intended to kill him in John 5, 18. He says in John 5, 39 to 42, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Yet they testify about me. The law and the prophets. And you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. I know you. You have no love for God within you. He uses the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to simply say that same thing to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the luxuriantly, opulently wealthy who are ignoring. Remember Sodom. Sodom wasn't destroyed by fire from another world in a historic catastrophe because Sodomites were homosexuals. He said, this is the sin of your sister Sodom, he says to apostate Jerusalem. Her pride. And she had abundance of bread and prosperity and forgot the poor. But then in happily, after that passage in Ezekiel 1649, he says in 1655, and yet Sodom will be restored. All of her fortunes will be restored. This is speaking of the apocatastasis panton. It's not just the restoration of Israel. It's the restoration of all things, including Sodom, including Assyria and Egypt and Israel and all nations, because God's plan from the beginning and his intention of his will is to sum up everything in his son, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. So he's saying the same thing. I know you that you have no love for God within you is the very judgment that Jesus is making of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Luke 16, 19 to 31 by telling the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Although this time he does it by the reworking of a folk tale. Please notice that the reworking of a folk tale in his own ingenious adaptation This parable of the rich man and and Lazarus is Jesus' ingenious adaptation of a folk tale that was famous at the time. And we'll get to that in a moment. But fifthly, and I want to hit this first, there is what is almost ignored universally by commentators, the 70 AD angle, the AD 70 angle to interpret this parable. In comparison with Rev the book, especially Revelation 17 to 18, this rich man represents the male counterpart of the woman named Babylon the Great. It is not speaking of an individual man, therefore, but of apostate Israel who's about to go through the second death. The first death was 586 B.C. under the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The second death is A.D. 70, from which there's no recovery of apostate Jerusalem or the temple there. And so the, both the man, the rich man, before he dies and lifts up his eyes in Hades, and the woman called Babylon the Great are both alike dressed in purple. They live in insolent, luxurious security, and they ignore the plight of the poor. In that case, the woman ignored the plight of the martyrs who were dying by the beast. This is related to the historical reversal of fortunes that occurred in A.D. 70. In other words, this parable is illustrating an upcoming reversal of fortunes in which apostate Israel will undergo a judgment by fire in order to enter up into their, end up in their restoration. And Gentiles will be called by the gospel. 
Lazarus represents Eliezer, the servant, the Gentile servant of Abraham in Genesis 15:2, as we've seen before, and as Julie Forwerda accurately portrayed it in her book called Raising Hell. This is then related to the historical reversal of fortunes that occurred in A.D. 70, which we've dealt with extensively in, previously, in previous teachings, especially Rev the Book. Luke himself shares with Mark and Matthew the little apocalypse, as it's called, in Luke 19:42 to 44, and all throughout chapter 21 of Luke, which can be compared with Mark 13 and with Matthew 24, called the little apocalypse, in which Jesus makes a clear prediction of the catastrophic overthrow of Jerusalem by fiery destruction of the temple by the armies marching under the idolatrous banner of Rome. So this very parable enters the flow of Luke's gospel, which leads to the dire prediction and even metaphorically depicts the fate of apostate Jerusalem with the rich man in Hades. And that, therefore, Jesus is portraying a real, temporary, historical disaster, not an eternal death of immortal bad souls in a place called Hades or hell or whatever else there is. And we know that hell was a very bad translation. And that's one of the reasons why Jerome, who was the translator of the Greek text into the Latin Vulgate, did a U-turn. He was a full-on universalist until he saw the Latin and he mixed up, along with Augustine, the whole idea of aeonios and idios and thought that everywhere you saw the word aeonios, it was eternal. So they started to believe in the stupidity and blasphemy and cultish notion of an eternal hell for immortal souls of bad people or unbelieving people or misbehaving people or avaricious rich people. And as I said last night, without pulling too many punches, a church that believes... In the absence of a hell in the plan of God is not a cultist church. It's a Christian church. A church that teaches about a hell for immortal souls is a cultist church. That's cultish. Because that portrays a God who is who makes Adolf Hitler look like a Cub Scout. And I went further tonight because last night I said Boy Scout. And so... This very parable enters the flow of Luke's gospel, which leads to the dire prediction and metaphorically depicts the fate of apostate Jerusalem with the rich man in Hades. It's a poetic connotation of the second death of apostate Jerusalem in what is known as the lake of fire in Revelation. It is more interesting, more than interesting, that this man is said to be in Hades when Revelation actually names Hades as the name that's thrown into the lake of fire. Hades itself is an entity that is destroyed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Along with Thanatos, death. Hey, death, where's your sting? 1 Corinthians 15 related to Hosea 13. Sixth point then, and this is where I'm getting to the heart of the matter. I started with the external large circle in the Lucan horizon. I'm moving close to the parable itself now. We're now considering the extra-biblical parallels to this parable, which are necessary for the interpretation of this parable. Sometimes you got to get outside the Bible to interpret what's in the Bible. And in this case, it is an extra-biblical parallel to this parable. And this was researched brilliantly by Richard Bauckham, In his book called The Fate of the Dead, Chapter 4, The Fate of the Dead is the name of the book. It's got a lot of interesting chapters to it. Chapter 4 is simply called The Rich Man and Lazarus, strangely enough. It's from pages 97 to 118. I've read it at least three or four times trying to get the gist of it. But I pulled out a couple of quotes from it that I think are helpful here. Previous to this, in the final paragraph of Chapter 3 of the book, before he even writes about the rich man and Lazarus, he has a chapter called Visiting Places of the Dead in Extra-Canonical Apocalypses. And he wrote this. He said, Jesus' parable 
gives the motif of a visitor to the places of the dead returning to report to them a novel twist. The rich man proposes that Lazarus should be such a person. Either Lazarus should be sent back alive to the world of the living. He would then be one of those characters who dies temporarily and returns to life. Or Lazarus should return as a ghost to communicate with the living. That's the suggestion made here. It's not clear in what form it is to be envisaged, but in either case, it is envisioned in order to be refused. Meaning, Jesus presents this whole parable and this whole idea of an afterlife of torment in order to subvert the idea, because it was a pharisaical idea. It was an idea that came from Plato of the Greek philosophers and from Egypt and this is an Egyptian folk tale. Jesus tells it, just like you'd walk into a place and say, a rabbi, a priest, and a minister went to the pearly gates and saw Peter. That's not biblical. You're not telling a biblical story. Peter doesn't meet you at the pearly gates. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But you tell the story because it's a storyline, and it's got a punchline. And Jesus tells the story that's already famous. It came originally from the Egyptian culture, and it came into the Jewish culture where it was told, variations of it are told seven times. The last one is found in the Jewish writings that we're going to look at in a moment. But Jesus adapted the story to subvert it. He told the story in order to explode the notion of such an afterlife and such a binary view of human life. He came to save all mankind and did. And so Bauckham is certainly right to say this. He says the interpretation of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, 19 to 31, shows how misleading... Extra-biblical parallels to biblical motifs can be when misused and how enlightening they can be when correctly used. When this is correctly seen as a folklore or a myth retold by Jesus to subvert the idea of a life in Hades after death, then we are rightly interpreting the parable and it's much to our enlightenment and encouragement and comfort. But the majority of commentators and theologians and preachers and pastors and evangelists, and they get on TV and do it, they misinterpret Jesus' intent here and warn and say, Jesus spoke about hell here. He spoke about hell. And every time he spoke about hell, he never spoke about hell, not the hell you're thinking of. He spoke about a Gehenna, which was an A.D. 70 catastrophe that happened in the circle around Jerusalem, a historical disaster that's over with now. It's 2,000 years old. It's over. So this shows how misleading these parallels can be when they're misused. How many readers of this parable have been misled because Jesus used an extra-biblical motif. He imported this motif in order to blow it to shreds, to smash it to smithereens, or to use another metaphor, to blow it all to hell. He did it to make a profound point. The faulty interpretation of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus draws attention to a folkloric, mythical depiction of the afterlife, while the true interpretation demolishes this depiction and draws attention to the egregious, outrageous economic disparity in Israel at the time. As part of a warning that because the law and the prophets are not being understood and is having that commandment of love. They're headed for disaster, historical disaster. And so, again, the faulty interpretation of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is the most 
the most popular, unfortunately, draws attention to a folkloric, mythical depiction of the afterlife, while the true interpretation of this parable demolishes this depiction and draws attention, first of all, to the egregious economic disparity of, in Israel at the time. However, I'll go past Bacham in this and say that the correct interpretation draws our attention even more to an all-saving person named Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law, was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion, obedient to God's saving design of all humankind to the point of death by crucifixion, and cried out in, while he became the sin of our unbelief, cried out, why have you abandoned me to God? What was happening there? He was becoming sin. He was becoming the sin of our unbelief. If Jesus Christ became the sin of our unbelief and he was the faithfulness by which we're justified, then nobody's damned by the unbelief that Jesus became for us on the cross and nobody is saved by their own fidelity but by the fidelity of Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all Jesus Christ. It's all Christ. So... In my view, the correct interpretation draws our attention even more to the all-saving person of Jesus Christ, of whom the law and the prophets testify. Climax of Luke, what's he doing? Walking on the road to Emmaus, what does he do? He expounds everything in the law and the prophets, from Moses to the law, the prophets, all the prophets, every one of them. Proverbs, the writings, the Samuels, the Chronicles, Esther, all the way through to Malachi. And he says to them, all of these testify about me. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That all came out a bit last night. Our Lord has indeed then both died and come back to life. He died and came back from the dead in order to be the Lord of the living and the dead. You want to talk about a place of the dead? There is a place of the dead. It's where Jesus Christ is. Why do you think he said to John, don't fear, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Hades and Thanatos. Why does he have the keys? Because he both died and came to life in order to be Lord of both the living and the dead. You say, what about the unbelieving dead? Well, we'll hit that in a minute. Our Lord Jesus has indeed both died and come back from the, li- from the dead in order to be Lord both of the living and the dead. In Romans 14.9, every tongue, including the tongue of the rich man who said, can you send Lazarus down? He is your servant after all, Abraham. Eliezer, Genesis 15.2. Can you send him and put a little water on his finger and touch my tongue? Every tongue will say that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every tongue will sing praise to me except for the rich man in hell. He's not going to be there. He's going to be cursing and screaming forever in hell. And we're going to be so happy up there at that table with Abraham so we can look at all our unbelieving relatives whom we love with all our heart and watch them writhing in unrelenting pain forever and ever and ever. Oh, how happy that's going to be. Yeah, right. You see where the logic of hell takes you? It takes you into a hell of your own making in this world, I'll tell you that right now. And it'll make life miserable for you. And it, it causes the psychological breakdown of hundreds of millions of people in church history, the doctrine of hell. And popes and monsignors and bishops and pastors and leaders of all kinds have used the terrorism of hell to control people. And to keep them from the liberated livingness that Jesus Christ approves of. So, that's how come I get a little exercised. Every tongue, according to Romans 14, 11, will sing praise to God in a chorus led by Jesus himself. In the eschaton, when all times will become simultaneous. What is the eschaton? It is the moment of Christ's appearing when all times in history become 
simultaneous. So Eric the Red, the Viking, will be rejoicing and singing praises with Shaka Zulu together, arm in arm, praising God the Father led by Jesus Christ. All times will become simultaneous. All flesh together, having been raised together with Christ, will see the salvation of God. So is Jesus telling a parable? Is he throwing in a little bombshell in here to undo the whole horizon of Luke, the whole horizon of Romans, the whole horizon of Paul, the whole horizon of John, the whole horizon of the law and the prophets, all of which speak of the universally saving significance of the person of the Messiah, Jesus. Is he taking this little paragraph and ruining it all? No, he's taking this little paragraph to accentuate it all and to undo the stupid, blasphemous lie called the doctrine of eternal hell for immortal souls of bad people. This rich man is like the nowhere man. Isn't he a bit like you and me? He's going to hell. We're all going to hell. Seventh, we now incorporate two significant quotes from the rightly renowned theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, who has written prolifically on the subject of the fate of the dead and the universal eschatology regarding, first of all, the one who dies having not believed the gospel. Moltmann was a prisoner of war. Moltmann was conscripted, forced into service to serve for the German army. Moltmann saw his very best friend that he grew up with have his head blown to pieces right next to him in an artillery barrage. Moltmann has been through some stuff. Moltmann has studied. He was in a prison camp, and he was allowed to read all the theology books in a whole library there because of a very kind allied chaplain and he read everything he could get his hands on and God transformed him and God showed him a vision of the millions that died in concentration camps and he saw the vision of them redeemed and whole and made whole and made alive and he saw this and he saw this vision very clearly I respect Jürgen Moltmann among almost all other theologians and he wrote in his one of his most recent books called The Living God and the Fullness of Life, which he wrote in 2015, he answers the question about the fate of the dead who have not believed the gospel during their time on earth. I think he answered it better than anyone else. On page 79 and 80 of The Living God and the Fullness of Life, he writes this, There is a remarkable passage in the epistle of Peter, namely 1 Peter 3:16 to 22 coupled with 1 Peter 4, 6, which expresses the assurance that Christ descended into the realm of death in order to proclaim the gospel to the spirits in prison, or, as it is said later, to the dead, so that they might have life in God's way, in the spirit, 4, 6. This means, first of all, the dead who, quote, formerly did not obey... This makes me think of Romans 11.32. The judgments of God are unfathomable because they're saving judgments. It's unfathomable because God judges in a saving way. He judges in the sense that he brings everybody into an imprisoned place called unbelief and disobedience so that he can have wholesale mercy on the whole group of them. So if God puts everybody in the prison of disobedience and unbelief to have mercy on all, then where do you get the idea that he's got this prison in the afterlife where he burns people? That's not logical. That's irrational, just like the irrational hatred that takes a political figure and scapegoats it so that they can escape their own accountability happening today. Scapegoating is a function of resentment. And it's always taking some rich man that you think should be perishing in hell forever and putting all the blame and all the hatred and all the vitriol and vituperation on that person. It's called scapegoating. And it's done by the lowest, most egregious evil immorality of people. 
The most immoral thing there is today is a doctrine of hell. It's an immoral doctrine, and it promotes immorality, the immorality of self-righteousness, of hatred, of judgmentalism, of criticism, of ressentiment, of scapegoating. So if you want to know the reason for the irrational hatred and the bitterness and the, the threats of violence and murder, it all ties to this one scapegoating thing. And so a lot of people, because they scapegoat, they like to see this rich man in hell. They're happy about it. And Christians and their evil immorality are so happy that they're not going to be there. So, that's just a little social commentary. You don't need it. He goes on to say, how it is possible, he says, how is it possible for the dead to hear the gospel and believe is not said? It is enough to know that death can set no limits on the risen Christ. And that the life-awakening spirit of God is with the dead. My uncle didn't believe and he died. Where is he? In the place where Jesus Christ is ruling and controlling things and comforting people and the spirit of life is. That's where he is. I mean, all those nightmares I had about him are not true. That's what I mean. Yes, your nightmares are stupid. Reject them. Put them aside. Have the courage to destroy that which is destroying you. False doctrines. He then says, the spirit of God is with the dead so that they have life. That is the divine eternal life for the living. They are dead to you. They're dead, but for the risen Christ, they're not dead. He can do something for them and he does do something for them. He raises them up and takes them with him on his way to the resurrection and to life. Moltmann's sentence, therefore, for the living, they are dead, but for the risen Christ, they're not dead is echoed, guess where that's echoed? Luke's gospel, chapter 20, verse 37. Let's go there. We're almost ready to close. Again, I said this is incomplete. It's undistilled. It's rough around the edges. But it's important to do it now. This is the time to do it. Luke 20, 37. Jesus said, because even Moses reported about the resurrection of the dead In the passage about the thorn bush, otherwise known as the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Look what Jesus says in his commentary on Exodus 3. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all are living with him. With God, all are living. But we don't see that way. Of course you don't see that way. God does. I'll take what God sees. The last clause is translated by God's word translation this way. In God's sight, all people are living. That's what he says. In God's sight, God's view, all people are living. Why? Because in Adam all died, but in Christ all are made alive. God, to God, all are living. Well, my vicious aunt, What a bitch she was. She died and went to hell. And she's living in hell. She's in a living hell. No, she's alive to God. She's alive with God. She's more pious than you are. She loves God. So, another quote from Moltmann is helpful. First, so that you can forget my pagan outbursts. And secondly, because it's a good quote. Regarding the Christian doctrine of the restoration of all things, he said the true Christian doctrine or the true Christian foundation for the hope of universal salvation is the theology of the cross. And the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross can only be the restoration of all things. Eighth. And this is the eighth thing. I don't know if he's here tonight, but I I have to quote somebody. In the hallway of Tetelestai Church, one of my favorite places to hang out, 
one of our own biblical theologians, Dan Fagan. I don't know where he is. He was here last night. Gave me a reference which can serve as a capstone to our present treatment of this parable. It's a verse from the writings of the prophets. Let's look at it in closing. Isaiah 41, 17. The poor and the needy, he says, seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, do not forsake them. The rich man in Hades, therefore, this is what I draw from that, may not have appeared to his peers to be poor and needy in this life. He was, though. He was. Lazarus may not have been able to cross the gap between paradise and torments in that mythical folkloric vision of the afterlife. But Yahweh can, and he has in Jesus Christ, who on the cross in his time of experiencing the lie that creation can be abandoned by God. He was actually experiencing the lie that creation can be abandoned by God. So he said, why have you abandoned me? He was becoming the sin of your unbelief and mine. The sin of the world is its unbelief. He takes it away by becoming sin. He became the sin of your unbelief. And he is in his faithfulness to the extent of death the means of our salvation. Jesus Christ saves, not your faith, his fidelity. God's righteousness is his act of universal salvation through the fidelity of Jesus Christ who took away unbelief, the sin of unbelief, by becoming the sin of your unbelief and crying out under that sin, why have you abandoned me? Expressing the very lie that we believe in our unbelief that God does abandon his creation and he does not and will not and never will. And all of creation, therefore, is screaming out in its expectation of liberation. Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross was his identification with a screaming creation, waiting for the liberation that comes from God universally. And so, Lazarus may not have been able to cross the gap between paradise and torments in that story, but Yahweh can, and he has in Jesus Christ, who on the time of the cross experienced the lie that the creation can be abandoned by God And when he was becoming the very sin of the world's unbelief, he was experiencing the desperate thirst of all men for salvation, a thirst that was quenched by his death and his resurrection. His resurrection, which was because the justification of all human beings unto life was won by his death. So if you're going to build a doctrine of a hell of eternal punishment for unrepentant, disobedient, unbelieving, or really bad souls, you can't use the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to do it. You can't do it. You can't use it as one of your foundation stones. For one reason... There's no other foundation that anyone can lay but that which is already laid by God, and it's Jesus Christ. There is a difference how you build on that foundation, but there's no difference as to those who are saved by that foundation. That's everybody. If you've already built a doctrine of a hell of eternal punishment with this parable as one of your foundation stones or your go-tos, which is a go-to for so many people, Your whole building is in danger of collapse. The weaponry that blows up the notion that Jesus is depicting the afterlife is planted right within the parable. Did he warn against avarice and greed? Did he warn against 
disregarding the poor like Lazarus? Did he warn against covetousness? Did he warn against all the things that brought catastrophic historical judgment on Sodom? Yes, he did. But the warning did not extend to a hell or a Hades of torment in the afterlife. As, he, as Paul wrote, and we're going to get to it someday in Galatians 6, 7. Those who sow to the flesh reap a harvest of corruption, but those who sow to the Spirit reap a harvest unto eternal or everlasting life, the life of the coming age. Meaning, the worst a person can do in this life is sow, sow to the flesh that they reap a corruption that ends in their physical death. Oh, it can be bad. It can be very bad. We do sow. We do reap what we sow. But the sowing to the flesh ends at physical death. Sowing to the spirit, like believing the word and receiving the word and continuing in the word, that sows to something that doesn't end with your death, but goes on and on. And that's why there's reward. Reward comes because people obey God with their liberated will which he liberated through the gospel. So in closing, the weaponry that blows up the notion that Jesus is depicting the afterlife is planted right in the front of the parable, at the end of the parable, in the middle of the parable. Like any good explosive man, he's placed the Explosives all in the right places to blow up the whole notion of an afterlife of torment versus an afterlife of paradise for some. The weaponry that blows up the notion that Jesus is depicting an afterlife is planted right within the parable. It is this phrase which Jesus makes Abraham utter. They have Moses and the prophets. And the They should listen to them. That's the point he's making. They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Moses and the prophets. Why? Because all they testify about is Christ and his need to suffer to enter into glory. And all the prophets with one mouth are hearing from God. And God speaks through the mouth of all the prophets of one sure thing. Apocatastasis panton, the restoration of all things, including Sodom, including Assyria, including Egypt, where that stupid myth of hell came from. The reason for this, they should listen to Moses and the prophets, is because the witness of the law and prophets is the witness of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive impact of his saving death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his present session at the right hand of God. I can almost see him now sitting there in glory next to the majesty on high because he has made purification for sins and he's now seated at the right hand of God and controls all things by the word of his power and upholds me now by the word of his power and upholds you by the word of his power. Everything where God is, is all right. Everything that God sees is all the living. He sees only all living. That's all God sees. That's all there is, is all living. So put off the lie. To put off the lie is to put off one whole hell of a lot in Ephesians 4.25. And so, though there is the divine requirement that the naked be clothed and the hungry be fed in the law and the prophets, which is what the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees were all disobeying. Though there is that commandment, nowhere in the law and the prophets is there an indication of an afterlife of hopeless torment for anyone. The Jews didn't believe it. It wasn't in the Jewish writings. It came imported from Egypt And the so-called safeguards of the word of God didn't safeguard it in Israel against that myth and that folkloric legend. So Jesus came, told it, reinterpreted it, adapted it, and blew it up. And you want to make that the reason why you believe there's a hell? And when someone's on their deathbed and they ask you about it, you better give them an answer. And say, that's not Jesus telling us there is such a place. That's Jesus screaming out as loud as he can that there ain't no such a place. 
So to me, the law and the prophets are not just all hanging on the commandment that we love one another, but they're all demonstrating Jesus Christ who fulfilled that commandment and by it saved all the unworthy, died for all the ungodly. So he doesn't leave one rich, evil SOB in hell. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll take the scattered, because it's kind of a scattered gun last night and tonight. We pulled both barrels, one barrel last night, one barrel tonight. But we pray that you'll bring it into a rifle-like pinpoint accuracy to further advance the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, which is all about your divine intent to summarize everything in Jesus Christ who has descended into the lowest parts and ascended into the highest parts of all creation in order to fill up the low and the high in all creation with himself, with his life, with his liberty, with his freedom. Thank you, Father. Give us the grace, the words, and the truth to preach this gospel to needy souls who are truly desperate. 